Amen. What's going on? How's everybody doing? Good to see your smiling faces and masks and beautiful masks and creative ways that you're wearing masks. <sighs> hi. Hi, hi, hi. Yeah, I just want to see everybody. just want to see. Welcome to the Foundry. Yeah, hi, let me try again. Welcome to the Foundry. Hey, hey, those of you joining us at home, glad to see you as well. Hopefully you're cheering in your house, in your pajamas. Uh, this is the Foundry where we are all about a better you and a better world. My name is Seth and I hope that we can be friends. Uh, we are in this new series, kind of new, called A Better Way. We're looking at the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at how this is this kind of revolutionary teachings of Jesus, how these are the essential teachings of Jesus that are trying to usher in a whole new kind of world and a whole new kind of kingdom. So we've talked about blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit. We've talked about blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This week we move on, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 5, this is what it says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meeks, Robert and Kim, for they will... Blessed are the meek. If you don't know, we have a family named the meeks, if they're not here. He's right there. He is right there. Look. Blessed is he. Blessed is he. He shall inherit the earth. Uh, sorry for the rest of you guys. Um, so, we know already, we've been talking about this idea, uh, the word blessed is the word makarios in the Greek text, which means happy. So, happy are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Then, of course, you have the word uh, for, um, for, what is it, the meek, which is preus. Preus can be translated as gentle. So, happy are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then, of course, you have the word inherit, which is the word kleronomeo, which is to be an heir or to be the inheritance. So, happy are the gentle, for the earth shall be their inheritance. Happy are the gentle, for they shall be the ones who inherit the earth. Now, we may have some thoughts, like we read through this quickly and we go, well, isn't this really just kind of about being nice and kind to others? Be gentle and good things will happen. When you are kind and loving to one another, then there will be some sort of reward, right? Love your neighbor, essentially, is kind of what we go with. But there's a ton of stuff going on here in just this little verse. There's so much that this verse is connected to and so much that it's speaking to that it's, it's kind of crazy. So I, I want to share with you a few thoughts today. Like, that will hopefully open us up to maybe a new way to think about this whole passage and a new way that will show us why this could have been a very, still is a very revolutionary teaching, all right? So, the first thing is this. I want to start by going back to the context and the setting. In case you haven't been here or you haven't been following along, what you have to understand is the Roman Empire is in control of everything at this moment. What you have to understand is that there's this high taxation rate. The people are struggling to get by. There is this rigid class system that's happening that's in place. You have 20% of the people, the upper class, who are controlling 75% of everything that the society has and produces. And you have the other 80% that are like the ones that are doing all the work. So you have 80% of the people living off of 25% of everything that is. 
Now, Jesus has already said, blessed are the poor and poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So his primary audience is like the 80%, because he's this peasant Jewish rabbi that's gaining this following. And he said these statements, and these are big statements, because it would have been connecting to the people like on the, on the, the, the lower class, the 80%, the people on the underside of power, which means when he says things like, blessed are the poor, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are the meek, like he's kind of, he's kind of siding with those, with the 80%. He's kind of siding with the people on the underside of the power. And then he adds, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, who currently owns the earth? Who currently owns the lands? Well, it's the, the landlords. It's the 20%. It's the people in the upper class. They own it. It's not the 80%. It's not the have-nots, right? So if you're in the upper part of society at this time, and this guy keeps saying, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor spirit, blessed are the mourn, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, you might start to get a little bit concerned about what kind of stuff this guy is up to. Now, here's the thing is that this passage, Jesus is actually uh, quoting a psalm. He's quoting a psalm. This comes from Psalms 37, verse uh, 11, where he says, Blessed, uh, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. So David, is, we assume, is talking about the land of Palestine. He's attempting to build his own personal kingdom, right? The kingdom of Israel. And so Jesus takes this text and he builds upon it to give them a new way to think about the whole thing. And so although he's quoting a Psalms here, he's making this very profound statement in which he's kind of turning everything upside down. And maybe there's even this irony in what he says because if there was a group of people that would have been hated it this, at this time in this place, it was the upper 20%. It was the haves because they had everything. They were the landlords. They owned and possessed the land that the 80% were working and farming and being charged to use. Do you see? Like, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's... So, so Jesus throws in like this kind of little twist, this wrench into the common thought of the day. He's turning the whole system around. He says to the people who are on the underside of the power, the, the, the lower 80%, he says, you were finally going to have a chance to possess the land. This, this probably was a big statement. Now, there's more that we need to talk about, about land and possession and possession of land, but we'll come back to that. So that's the first thing, is just keeping in mind the, the context and why this would have been a big deal. The second thing is this, when Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, they shall inherit the earth, he's talking to people, to an entire people group, who are under Roman oppression. Well, how did Rome come to possess the land? Was it through kindness and gentleness, and through sending teddy bears and chocolates and asking politely? No, of course not. The Romans were pretty brutal. In fact, they took over in, in what was known as the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, right? But they also had another saying, which was peace through victory. Well, which means in order to bring the Roman peace, they had to have victory, like, over you. And the way that they had victory over you was through a lot of, like, death and violence and destruction. So when, when, he, when he says this stuff, um, 
when you consider the context, it begins to get a bit more interesting. So the, the way that the Romans brought peace to, uh, to Jerusalem in 70 AD is with the destruction of the temple. There's a, a Roman historian, Josephus, wrote about it in his book, The War of the Jews. He talks about exactly how the Romans brought peace to Jerusalem. Take a look at this. This is from his book. And this is a, a little bit difficult to read, so if I stumble over the words, forgive me. But when they went in numbers into the lanes of the city, with their swords drawn, they slew those who they overtook without mercy and set fire to the houses whither the Jews were fled and burnt every soul in them and laid waste a great many of the rest. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, they found in them entire families of dead men and the upper rooms full of dead corpses. That is such of, that is of such as died by the famine. So not only do you have this structure, this uh, you know, foreign oppressor, not only is, is this high taxation rate, this strict um, uh, social order, somewhere in there you also have this famine that's, people are already struggling, and you add a famine on top of that. So when the Romans come to actually like take over Jerusalem, you know, the capital city, the heart of, the, of Israel, they find there's already dead bodies there because of the famine. This is not a good time. So he keeps going. He says, um, can we bring that back up? Uh, yeah, where, where are we? That's not from. And when they were come to the houses to plunder them, go back. Okay, come to the house of plunder. They found him. The, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We just read that. Okay, next one. You were right. Slide, people. You are, you're always right. Then they stood in a, in a horror at this site, the dead bodies, and went out without touching anything. So they see the people that have died from famine, and they're like, they don't want to mess with them. They're really concerned about them. But, keep going. <laughs> but although they had this commiseration for such as were destroyed in that manner, that being the famine, Yet had they not the same for those that were still alive, but they ran everyone through whom they met with and obstructed the very lanes with their dead bodies and made the whole city run down with blood to such a degree indeed that the fire of many of the houses was quenched with these men's blood. The peace of Rome, everybody. So much blood, and there's body lining the streets. So much blood in the streets that it's putting out house fires. This is like 37 years after Jesus. This is the kind of oppression they've been dealing with. So how did Rome come to possess the land of Israel? It wasn't through gentleness. Yeah. You also have to realize that Romans weren't the first people to like overtake the land. They weren't the first people to oppress Israel. It's been going on for a long time. You go back to like 500 BC, it starts with the Babylonians, then you have the Persians, then you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans. So the track record or the lesson that the people of Israel have been learning through their history about how you come to possess land, how you come to inherit the land, primarily had to do with force in violence. So when Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, the earth will be their inheritance, not only would it have been bothersome to the upper 20% who currently possess the land, it might have seemed like a bit of a joke. Like, really? Like, 
You think gentleness will lead to the possession of the land because our history and our experience might suggest otherwise. It, it'd be like, never mind. In our country, in this time, in this place, how do we possess land? Uh, well, I find a piece of property that's for sale. If it's in Oviedo, Oviedo or Geneva, you know it's going to be like super expensive right now because it's just where we're at. So you find the piece of property, you negotiate the price, you like sign a contract, you get a mortgage or you pay the money, whatever it is, and then you get like this deed, the thing belongs to you and it's all nice and fairly peaceful. But how does one nation acquire or come to possess more land, more territory, more of the earth? Well, usually it's by taking land from another nation or people group, right? This is what we see all throughout history. And here's the thing you may have noticed too, is that uh, people don't like to have their land taken from them, do they? This is what we also see throughout history. So anytime you have one nation or people trying to take land, territory, possess whatever from another nation or people, the result is things like war and death and violence. So again, when Jesus says, blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth, it's kind of like, come on, Jesus, like, that's not how the world works. That's not how things happen. That's not how this, to which Jesus might say, exactly. But I'm doing this like new thing. I'm bringing this whole new way of operating. I'm bringing this new kingdom into being. One that doesn't look like, doesn't operate, doesn't function like any other kingdom you've ever seen or heard of or experienced. Now, the next thing is this. This has to do with a, a possession of the land, owning the land, whatever. We have to keep in context the history of the people and, and where they've come from and the instructions God have given them in mind. We have to understand that the possession of the land to Israel was a huge deal. I mean, an absolutely huge deal of the people of Israel because to Israel, possessing the land wasn't just about like owning the property for the sake of wealth. Possession of the land was connected to the very promises of God. You go all the way back to Abraham. Abraham promises, or God promises to Abraham, you will become a great nation. I will give you this, this land of promise that you will raise your people up, right? It's this whole thing. And so it's not just we want to have it for possession's sake. It's no, this, this is like connects us to what God has given to our ancestor, Abraham. The land of promise and the possession of the land in their minds is directly tied to the fulfillment of God's promises. The land was a huge deal. In fact, it was such a big deal that between the book of Judges, uh, Genesis and Judges, there's 46 verses that speak to God's promise and God's plan. Of those 46 verses that speak to God's promise and God's plan, 39 of them mention the land. So there's only seven out of the 46 that don't mention the land when they talk about God's promise. What, what's more interesting is that of the 39 verses that mention the land, 29 of them, the land is the primary focus. 29 of them, the land is the primary focus. So this is kind of a big deal. Like this is not something to take lightly. This is something to take super serious. To, to possess the land. It's connected to God's promise. Now, a couple things concerning possession of the land within, the, within Israel and, and the people themselves. According to God and God's instruction for all this, 
Um, when the Hebrew people, when the Jewish people took over the land of Israel, the promised land, the land gets divided amongst the tribes. It gets divided amongst 11 tribes because the 12 tribes is Levi. They don't get land. They, the, the 11 tribes take it and they break it from tribe and to clan and to family. And that's like their inheritance. Okay, so again, that's why this, this whole concept of understanding of who possesses the land is so very important. So there's all kinds of laws throughout the Old Testament that deal with uh, the acquisition of land, the possibility of selling and buying land, how, it, how the whole thing functions, how land gets passed down from one generation to the next. There's all kinds of rules. We could take like a whole series and talk about the possession of the land. There's just that much stuff. But there's a, a big one uh, that I think we have to be a, a mindful of because I think it speaks to a deeper sense of the Jewish consciousness that's important for us to understand today. So the big one, one of the big things is this. It's concerning what's called the year of Jubilee, if you're familiar with this at all. The year of Jubilee is it's seven cycles of seven, seven years, right? It's seven sabbatical years. So what happens is God gave them instructions in the Old Testament. He said, you will work the land for six years, and then you will let it rest for one. So you get seven years. You do that seven times, you get the year of Jubilee, right? So there's this pattern in the system. Work the land for six years, give it a rest for seven uh, on, on the seventh year. It also kind of mimics, you know, like the story of creation where God creates for six days and takes a day of rest. It also mimics God's instructions to the people of Israel where he says, you will work for six days and take a day of rest. So there's this cycle built into all of it. So seven cycles of seven years, the year of Jubilee, it's 49 years. Every 49 years, some people say it's 50 years, it has to do with some festival things, some misconfusion there, some confusion there. The idea is around every 49 or 50 years, there's this massive thing that happens, the year of Jubilee. It's this incredible undoing, if you will. The beauty of the year of Jubilee is that every 49th, 50th year, all debt and all bondage was canceled. And not only that, but all of the land that was bought, sold, purchased, taken, whatever, was to be restored to its original owner, the way that it was broken down by tribe and clan and family. It's like this giant redo, reset button, the year of Jubilee. So God builds into this plan reconciliation, redemption, restoration. All right, side note, if, if your understanding of the nature of God doesn't factor in something like the instructions for the year of Jubilee, where everything gets restored and where the playing fields are level, like then I think you're missing out something incredible about who God is. Now, there's stuff we could talk about the year of Jubilee going on and on. We don't have time for that either. I just want you to be aware of it because it speaks to this bigger thought in the Jewish consciousness, something I think is important for us to be aware of. Because of how God established the system, and because of the year of Jubilee, if you were to go and try to purchase some land, try to buy some, try to sell some, whatever, you're not actually purchasing the land itself. You're purchasing the use of the land. So depending upon where you're at in the, seven, the cycle of seven, right, it will depend on your price. It will depend on how long you get to use it. Did you buy it at the last cycle so you've only got six years before you have to let it rest? Did you buy it at the beginning so now you've got like 40 years to use it, something like that? That affects the price on the whole thing. But eventually, it's going to go back to the original owner. Eventually, it's going to go back to the original owner. The idea was that the sale of your land or the purchase of land was never permanent. 
This is a really important bit to understand. The reason the land was never sold or bought or whatever permanently, because the bigger understanding in the Jewish mindset was that the earth, the land, all that is ultimately belong to God, and you are just a steward of it. You know, again, kind of like the story of creation where God creates this thing and he says, here, I want you to, to run this, to run this show, to take care of it, to take care of you are the steward of all that I have. In fact, in, in, in Leviticus uh, chapter 25, God speaks directly to this. Uh, Leviticus 25 the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. It all belongs to God. You, you could also make a strong case that, that when we buy into the mindset of possession and ownership, like when we think we own something, then all of a sudden that creates all kinds of other issues. Like it leads to like fighting over who owns what. And have you ever seen kids over a toy? Well, it's not mine. Yes, it is. It's yours. It's not, you can't touch it. It's mine. We get super defensive over the stuff that we believe we possess, right? Um, it, it's the same idea. Uh, it, it, it's this idea of possession that leads to things like greediness or envy or all these things that now we feel like we have to have more and more stuff. Now, obviously, this isn't the only place where God talks, where, where the Bible talks about God owning everything. In fact, God makes a couple of claims himself about owning, like, everything. Let me show you a few just for fun. This is Exodus chapter 9. Moses, God has just sent Moses to Pharaoh to release the people, to set the uh, slaves free. Uh, and this is what Moses says. He's, he's going through the plagues in this moment. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread my hands in prayer to, be, uh, to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. This was their current constant understanding. Here's another one where God himself makes claim of ownership of the earth. This is, they've come out of Egypt. They're now at the base of Mount Sinai. They meet God, like they're, they're having this moment. And God says this, now if you obey me fully and keep my command, uh, covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So even after the fall, God is claiming ownership of this place. It's mine. I'm taking care of it. I want. Here's a couple other ones where the scripture speaks to um, everything being the Lord's. Deuteronomy chapter 10. To the Lord your God belongs the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Psalms 24. The Psalms is filled with this stuff. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Psalms 89. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. So in the Jewish mind, everything belonged to God, and we are just the stewards. Nothing can really be bought or sold because it doesn't belong to you. This, by the way, carries all kinds of deep implications. Like the concepts of possession and ownership in light of the kingdom, in light of everything belonging to God, kind of leads to this idea that possession is, is temporary and it's kind, of a, it's kind of an illusion, isn't it? Like, what do we really own? We don't really own anything. This is something that as a Western culture, Western society, we, we've struggled to understand because we're all about ownership and possession. This is something that 
people groups that are more connected to the earth, I think, have a better understanding of. There's this understanding of the freedom of the land, but we've bought into this idea of possession and private property, so we put fences so that people can't get in or take our stuff, and we build walls to help keep people out, and it's all kind of a, kind of a joke, isn't it? What do you really possess? All the stuff you have, in a few short years, we won't be here. Who does it belong to? It's really interesting. We bought property in Geneva like three years ago, and it's our property, and we own it in the bank. We share custody. Um, you know, and it's like it's our thing sort of deal. But we got that property from a family who had a trust of land, and the last like relative, or one of the last relatives had died off, and so they decided to sell it, this land that had been in the family. Now I possess it for a little while, but I, do I really possess it? Because eventually it won't be mine either. So maybe there's this idea that there's, there's this freedom that comes from the idea that none of it's actually mine and it all belongs to God. I wonder if I really bought into this thinking, would it change how I live? If I really bought into this, would I think differently about what I want and what I need and what I must have? Do you know, side note, <laughs> there's like seven houses on my street. Six of the seven people have tractors. One does not. I keep thinking, do I need to try to buy a tractor? I can't afford a tractor anyway. My wife said no. <laughs> she heard the back. She said no. You but I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I could use a tractor. Well, they all got tractors. Well, Maybe I should use their, right? It's this idea, why do six people on the same street need to have a tractor? I, because we have to have our own thing. Uh, there's another guy I met recently who, um, he just had hip replacement. He had a hip replacement surgery. And I found out this week that he needed some help. And he lives down the road from me. And then I talked to his son and his son said, yeah, did you know? And I said, I didn't know. And I said, does he need help? He said, no, he won't ask for help. I said, why won't he ask for help? He said, because if he thinks if he asks for help, then he owes you something, right? So there's this struggle. Like, we're, we're so worried about possession and, and what we have and, and what people can, how we interact. It, like, binds us in a weird sort of way. He can't even ask for help. Why do we need seven tractors on the same road? We're caught up in this mindset of possession. And I can't help but think that if I really bought into this thing that Jesus is teaching, like, there's some freedom here that we're missing out on. Now, another reason I think this passage is interesting, and this is kind of more of a, a peripheral thought than like the meat of the thing, but it's, it, it bears mentioning. Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Now, it seems like so often the goal has been, the whole goal in like this faith, thing, in this Jesus thing, in this salvation and rescue thing, the point of church and God and all this, and doing some things and avoiding doing other things is like so that one day I can like leave this place and go somewhere else because that's where the reward is. The reward is somewhere else. The reward is something else. And if I can just get to that, so that's why I do all this stuff that I do so that I, I go there instead of here and so why would Jesus say, blessed are the gentle, they will inherit the earth? Why would he say that if the story is going somewhere else? 
Well, unless it's those who are saved are, are going somewhere else and the gentle stay behind until God destroys the earth, but I don't feel like they would be very happy or like that would be a blessing if that's how it worked. Unless, of course, like he's, he's getting at something different. Unless, of course, like the goal is not to get out of this place. When you consider how the story of the Bible starts and how the story of the Bible ends, maybe this begins to make a bit more sense. How does the story start? Genesis 1, God shows up, God creates, God puts man in the garden, says work this, take care of this, this is your responsibility. God's dwelling with his creation here. There's not somewhere else, it's just here, God's here. If you skip ahead to the very end of the story, Genesis, or sorry, Revelation 21, you see the, the, the new heaven and the new earth, the holy city Jerusalem is descending from the heavens to the earth. The one seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And we see God dwelling again here amongst his creation and amongst his people. Hmm. So in light of how the story starts and how the story ends, and the idea that the whole earth is the Lord's, maybe when Jesus says, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, it begins to make a bit of sense. Oh, okay, I could see that, maybe. It's kind of interesting. Now, let me give you one more thought here, and then we'll, then we'll start, start wrapping it up. When it comes to the idea of gentleness, the idea of being gentle, uh, Sometimes I think we equate gentleness with weakness or gentleness with softness. Um, it's not very often that we seem to highlight those who are gentle. Oh, well, he's just a gentle soul, maybe. But the implication is like a lack of toughness, a lack of strength. It often seems like there's not, uh, gentleness is not an attribute that, that receives much praise. When we think about the kinds of people that we uh, hold in higher regards in our culture, it's people that tend to be like uh, strong, like take no prisoners kind of people. Like we don't hold up, we don't um, elevate a lot of people who are gentle. Like for example, uh, there may be a few examples, like, like a Martin Luther King Jr., like a Mother Teresa, like a Nelson Mandela, a few of those along the way. But in general, we want people that, that, that are tough, who defy the odds, who take no prisoners, right? That's the people that get elevated in our society. We like our leaders to be no-nonsense kind of people, leaders who get the job done, people that are tough enough to fight we elevate the kind of people that step into the playing field of life and are strong enough and fast enough to smash anybody that gets in their way. We don't particularly elevate the people that step into the field of life and begin to admire and pick the daisies in the field because it's not tough and we don't, we don't value the gentleness. The problem, I think, with this idea is that to be gentle doesn't mean to be weak. In fact, to be gentle takes an extraordinary amount of strength and courage. Jesus was gentle, and he's like, he's one of the toughest guys I know. Matthew chapter 11 says this, Jesus says this, come to me, all, who, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. It's his gentleness 
that allows him to take this on. He, he calls himself gentle, and yet he's strong enough to take on the weight of all of your and my stuff, our garbage. Have you ever tried to support somebody that's going through a lot of garbage? It can be a lot. And he's doing it for all of us. In Matthew chapter 21, it's the uh, triumphal entry the week before Jesus is about to die. Uh, we see this happen. Matthew chapter 21, 4 and 5. Uh, this is, he's quoting the prophets. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So a king going into battle would ride on a horse going to fight. A king riding on a donkey meant he was coming in peace. Matthew says, see, your king comes to you gentle and in peace. He's riding on a donkey. This is not the warrior Christ coming in with a sword and a battle horse. This is a gentle, loving, peaceful revolution. Even after he's arrested, he doesn't fight. Even after he's beaten and spit upon, has nails driven through his body where he is hung on a cross, he has the strength to not lash out. He has the strength to not go into some sort of fit of rage. He has the strength to not call his followers to arms. He has the strength to say something like this in Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. It's his gentleness that gives him the strength to forgive. It's his gentleness that gives him the strength to love sacrificially. It's his gentleness that gives him the strength to save the world. You've got to be a bit tough if you're going to be gentle. Here's what it does. Gentleness is like, it absorbs the thing that's coming at you and it's strong enough to absorb it and to not retaliate in kind. It retaliates with love. It's his gentleness that allows Jesus to take the pain, the hurt, the sin of the world, to take the evil that's being done to him as he's being nailed to the cross and to respond to it not in violence, to respond to it not in a way that escalates the situation, but in a sacrificial and loving way that actually brings healing to the world. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody? Maybe it's gotten a little heated. Maybe you're talking about something like politics. Maybe you're arguing about how could a five ounce bird carry a one pound coconut? Maybe, <laughs> thank you. Maybe you're talking, arguing with a spouse or a friend or a boss. Maybe it's with your spouse and you're talking about finances, how to raise the kids, what we're going to do, whatever, whatever. Uh, it's getting a little heated. Our tendency in these moments is to like, it's like one-upmanship. Like they come at you at this particular level. And so you feel a bit threatened or a bit attacked. And so you come at this level or you come at equal or greater levels of response. Or you use equal or greater uh, levels of harshness of words. 
right? That's, that's typically the way we, we respond. It's gentleness that allows you to absorb this thing that's coming at you and to respond in a way that will lead to healing instead of more conflict. But it, that's, that's so tough. Have you ever um, been in an argument, been mistreated? Have you ever had to hold your tongue? It's so tough. Because you want to fire back. You want to let them know that you're not going to be pushed around. You want to let them know that they can't walk all over you. Why? Because we want to be seen as tough because we don't value the gentleness. It's hard to hold your tongue. It's hard when you've been done wrong to turn the other cheek, isn't it? Well, I'm not going to let them do that again. I'll show you. It's hard sometimes to not punch somebody in the face. Yeah? It's hard. It's hard to be gentle. It's hard to take that and then to give back love. You've got to be tough to be gentle. So what's the point? Why is this a better way? Why would this be some sort of revolutionary teaching? Well, again, start with the context. Roman, Rome is in control, high taxation rate, strict social order, 20, 20% of the people owning 75% of the stuff. How did they acquire their stuff? Well, my guess is it wasn't through the gentleness road, path. Look at the Romans, how they got their stuff. So when Jesus says the gentle will inherit the earth, will inherit the land, the people who own the land might start to get a bit concerned about this. So it's a bit of a threat to the system because he's introducing a whole new way of operating. He's introducing a whole new kind of kingdom. He says, the thing that you think is working for you in the upper 20%, we're not going to do that anymore. We're doing something entirely different. On top of that, he's already said, blessed are the poor and the poor in spirit, which we talked about through this idea of attachment and detachment. That when we detach from the self and when we detach from our stuff, we're able to stand outside of the system. And by standing outside of the system, we actually step into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of love. And so when he adds, blessed are the gentle, they will inherit the earth, you can imagine this would raise a few eyebrows. Those at the top of the system, they like how things are. And that system has to do with possession and ownership and how much we have and the thought here is, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, is that when you actually let go of the self and let go of the stuff, you are now open to inherit more than you could ever imagine. When you're not continually striving to build the ego, when you're not continually striving to build your own personal empire, there is this whole new kind of kingdom this kingdom that says uh, you can be free. There's this freedom within this kingdom that says you don't have to keep defending, fighting, propping up the self. You don't, uh, you don't have to keep like, uh, uh, acquiring more and more stuff that doesn't make you happy. When you detach from the ego, from the self, you're free to be gentle when you detach from, from the idea of possession, you open yourself up to so much more. This is in line with the teaching of a guy like uh, St. Francis, 
who taught his disciples to taught his followers. He said, uh, he told them to never own anything so that they could be open to everything. Never own anything so you could be open to anything. It's in line with the teaching of, of a guy like Jesus, who when he sent out his disciples on like the Great Commission, he said this, do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff for the workers worth his keep. Now what's fascinating is, later on in the story of Jesus, we see Jesus, like the, the night he's arrested, he has this conversation with his disciples. Like they're getting, back, they're getting the gang back together. They've been doing this journey, all this stuff. Watch what happens. Luke chapter 22. Then Jesus asked them, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? What did they say? Nothing. So Jesus says similar things. St. Francis says similar things to Jesus. Don't own anything. You're open to everything. Jesus says, don't take anything on your journey. He comes back to him. How was it? Did you need anything? No, everything was covered. We were taken care of. In fact, in Matthew 10, Jesus also says, freely you have received, freely give. It's not like a question mark, by the way. It's like a statement. Freely you've received, freely give. This whole thing, this whole conversation, it's like, it's like this versus this. It's me holding on to myself, to my stuff, to my ego, to my possessions, to my pride. And the problem is, is that me doing this is a bit limiting. I can only do so much. I can only possess so much. I don't really possess anything anyways, but I'm going to hold on to it like it's mine. And what Jesus is inviting us to is to let go of that way. He invites us to this better way that looks a lot more like this, where you let go of all this and you open yourself up to this. Because the whole earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Scripture also says the whole earth is full of his glory. So when you let go of all this and you open yourself up to this, all of a sudden, you not only open yourself up to everything that is the Lord's, but you open yourself up to his glory that is found within all of it. Like that, that actually might be kind of a better way. You see, when, when you do this, when you're always holding on to stuff, when you're protecting the ego and the self and all my stuff, it actually leads to a lot of this. You're ready, you're ready to go. You're gonna fight over who you think you are. Somebody said something bad about you, you're looking for, you're gonna to try to fight to keep your stuff, trying to, see, but when you let go and you open, you open to the things of God, and then this right here, this is the gentleness that is the revolution. This is what allows you to love. This is what allows you to serve. This is what allows you to give. This is what allows you to receive. And sometimes it's super hard to receive, isn't it? Like the guy that needed help but didn't want to ask for help because he was afraid that he might have to owe somebody a favor. Why is it that we have so, such difficulty in receiving? Maybe this is why we struggle to understand the grace of God even. Because we struggle with receiving 
it doesn't make sense to us because we're transactional in our thinking because we're worried about possession and material things and it's always based on transactions. So when it comes to something like God who's saying, hey, just open your hands. I want to give you everything. I want you to experience the presence, the glory of God. Now the whole earth is mine and everything in it. Stop holding on to a little bit in your tiny hand that you can hold on to. Open your palm and see what I have in store for you. Well, that's a better way. So the question for us is, for you, for me, how will you live? Holding on to the self, to the stuff, to things that are all very much temporary anyways? Or will you open yourself up to this gentleness, to this revolution, to this better way? Blessed are the gentle, for you shall inherit the earth.